Hey, everybody. Welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I Well, thank you for having me, first of all. Did you personally want to hear from the former I president? I wanted to hear from the former president, but honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in? I just, I kind of thought that would be an awesome moment. I can't. Well, I I might be able to according to instructions, but I don't want to. Why do you want to speak out publicly? Because this was a really cool experience. Well, for those of you who aren't living under a rock. That was Emily Kors. She is the forewoman in the Georgia Special Grand Jury. And she went public this week and she revealed some stuff that a lot of people found interesting. I think, you know, we've heard people talk about, you know, was it inappropriate what she did? Will it negatively impact the case? I kind of want to talk a little bit instead about what I think is the obvious, what I think most people are kind of dancing around, which is, and to quote the great, late, great Richard Pryor, is the girl crazy? I mean, the animation, the giggling, the eye rolling, the acting like a 16-year-old who just got hit on by the hot guy at the prom. There's something disturbing in those videos and those interviews. I mean, you know, she's very cagey. She's very coy. She's very cryptic. You know, she's like, is Donald Trump going to be indicted? I don't know. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. Isn't it kind of obvious? But I'm not saying anything. Let me just say that you might just see him in court soon. But hey, I could be talking about the food court. Like, it's just a fun, it's it's like a walking Saturday Night Live skit. And Sarah Sherman, who is a very, very funny cast member, uh, I think was born to play Emily Kors. I'm going to say that watching her, I had to cringe and felt like a rubbernecking. And I just felt, I just felt really bad for her. She's not, she's just a regular person who doesn't have any media training, no expertise in anything. And, you know, she could be the girl from Queen. She could be anybody. And she's been put on the stage. I mean, she chose to do it, but I, I really wish she had had a friend who said, please don't do this because it's changed her life probably for the worse for the rest of her life. And really... You know, those five interviews she gave, I just feel really bad for her. I wish she hadn't done it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a there's an element of that that I think is true. But like, again, back to what I was talking about. If you were out looking for a babysitter, would you hire her? Would you put her anywhere I, I, near your children? I'm, I'm going to refuse to make any fun of her. She's just a regular person who is put in front of the media and in an incredibly intense case that the scrutiny, I mean, she's probably getting death threats from Trump supporters for all we know. Everything that's going to go on in her life has been flipped upside down. And I I really wish for her sake she hadn't done it. Don't you think the Trumpsters love her, though? Because the whole notion that she undermined the case, which will give Trump and his attorneys the ability to file a motion to dismiss, like, I think she's a favorite of theirs now. But I don't think that'll preclude them from, you know, being vile to them. To her, no. sorry. And, and and to your point, Maddie, and in general, I, I agree with you and you try to have some empathy and look at the flip side of things. But no other jurors came forward. She seems to be really, really relishing her Warholian 15 minutes of fame. She's not stupid. And I, you know, I just, there's a point to where I feel people need to just take responsibility for their actions. I, you know, do I feel sorry for her? 
I don't know if I feel sorry for her. I think she's made a very conscious decision to get in front of the, those cameras. And, you know, the chips are going to fall where they may. Yes. But, you know, the reason she was the only one that came forward is because she's the only one whose name is listed because no one else could be contacted by the press. And uh, every news organization reached out to her, probably hundreds. Yeah, of but if you're on that jury and you call up ABC, CNN and say, hey, I was on the jury with Emily, like you're, you're on the air in two seconds, right? Yeah, but she didn't seek it out, apparently. She did not call ABC. She got a call and then she decided, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do this interview. And then and, another call and, and another call and another call. And, another call. And, and, you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> uh, I, Again, I just feel bad for her. I hope that mm -hmm. her life goes well and that she doesn't have death threats and that she isn't, you know, this doesn't hurt her. I, I hope it helps her. Yeah. I mean, the other question that, that is begging to be answered is forewoman? I mean, whose idea? How did that happen? How did she become the forewoman? She's the only one who was willing to do it, apparently. Literally, that's what she I said. Know. I think there's something... I don't know. If I was... If my life was hanging on by a, a judicial thread and I was in court with all kinds of, you know, incriminating stuff coming my way. And I felt like my hands, my life was in her hands. I don't know. I mean, the most disturbing things, if I'm gonna go straight to it, is that she also said that it was an honor to shake Rudolph Giuliani's hand. Yeah, well, just the, the clip we play where like she was so excited about the concept of swearing in Trump. I mean, there's some bizarre shit there. I think it's actually, probably normal what she said for a lot of jurors in many places in the country uh that they're not they're not necessarily a jury of our peers yeah well the substance of what she said isn't really like the issue that i have because i think and even the judge yesterday came out and said you know she didn't do anything wrong she's she didn't talk about deliberations any of that stuff and we're going to get into that with our guest uh i'm thrilled that we have ellie honig on today former SDNY prosecutor, and uh, we're going to talk to him about all this. But it's more her. It's the messenger, not the message. Because the message in itself wasn't that startling. It, she got attention. It, we're talking about her, not because she came out and said, you know, it was a long, arduous process, and I hope justice is served. She, we're, we're talking about her because... There needs to, Lauren Michaels, if you're listening, there desperately needs to be an SNL skit because it's comedy. It's go, It's comedy gold. Okay. Comedy gold. I hope they don't do a skit about her. I That doesn't help. I just hope that she can go back to her normal life at Michaels or wherever it is she works. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to see. The second thing I want to talk about today of our two big things is that uh, January 6th special counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. That's a big, bold move. Javanka. Uh, <laughs> yes. Those two people repulse me so much that there's no amount of harm that could come to them that would, uh, that would not make me happy. Yeah. So my question is, how long can you postpone, you know, when you're subpoenaed? I'm asking this seriously. This isn't a joke. Like, how, how long can they, they push this back? Well, I think that's up to the prosec prosecutors. I mean, we've been on this case now for, what, two years, almost two years? And, like, look at how fast and how expedited things have become under Jack Smith. Like, why, why, why didn't Garland subpoena Ivanka and Jared Kushner I, I, before almost two years? It's a great question. 
But I, you know, because of the past that we've had, you know, people have been subpoenaed and like nothing has happened in a timely fashion. Yeah, well, it's up I'm to curious. the prosecutors how, whether they want to go to court and, and force the issue. I mean, look, the Justice Department yesterday went to the federal courts and said, we want you to compel Pence to testify. Yes. Now, if Garland didn't do that six months ago, nine months ago, 11 months ago, then that's why you have delays. I ultimately think that Garland's going to do the right thing, but, but his process for me... It's just way too slow. Hmm. And thankfully, Jack Smith is not operating slowly. Yes. I, I think they, uh, Javanka will delay as much as they can, which, you know, the process is slow and could take months. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to take that long. I think, I think uh, things are moving very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, under oath in a federal grand jury, they're both going to say some incriminating shit about daddy. Because they have to. It's either that or go to jail. Absolutely. You know, I don't think Jack Smith is fucking around. The other thing, too, is that uh, Congressman Scott Perry, our favorite insurrectionist, he's fighting to keep his cell, cell records private. And they're all arguing like Pence is, like on the speech or debate clause, you know, separation of powers. It's like, it, that, that doesn't apply here. That's another thing we'll get into with, with Ellie Honig. But uh, Scott's a guy who, you know, he wanted the Department of Justice to tell Georgia to say the election was fraudulent. You know, it was, all, it was all part of that, like, you know, you just do your thing and we'll get the Republican congressman to do the rest. You know, it was like a mob. And, you know, he's guilty of conspiracy to defraud the government, obstruction of justice. Like, he's in some serious trouble. But the question I ask, every time I see this kind of news, I always ask, if they have nothing to hide, if they did nothing wrong... Why are they all fighting like cornered rats to keep everything private, not to testify, not to cooperate like the mob? It's another thing we're going to get into with, with Ellie because Ellie Honig uh, spent many years as a prosecutor. But what he did was he put a hundred mafioso in prison. And, uh, you know, so he knows a lot about organized crime. And there's a definite parallel between the mobsters that he put away and prosecuted and put away, and uh, the Trump cabal. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. Who wants to go first? Jen. My winner this week is Democrat Jennifer McClellan by making history as the first black woman elected to represent Virginia in Congress. My loser, my favorite loser, Kevin McCarthy. I'm quoting Hakeem Jeffries. The apparent transfer of video footage represents an egregious security breach that endangers the hardworking women and men of the United States Capitol Police who valiantly defended our democracy with their lives at risk on that fateful day. My loser this week is Vladimir Putin. Today we mark one year since Putin chose a war with Ukraine, which has killed hundreds of thousands of people, innocent people, and dislocated at least eight or 10 million. It was a war of choice, and he is now shown that Russia is a paper tiger and everything else that we've seen. My winner is, of course, the Ukrainian people for showing the world that they have what it takes to fight Russia and save their democracy. My winner, President Biden, who showed real leadership in Ukraine and uh, Eastern Europe this week, uh, and also for jumping 12 points in three months in a new poll of Democrats who say he is the best candidate to win in 24. That's a huge turn. My loser... I agree. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who in a grave breach of security, granted Trump and Putin-loving Fox host Tucker Carlson exclusive access to thousands of hours of surveillance footage. 
from the J6 insurrection. Which brings us to our rant. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week granted Fox News' Tucker Carlson exclusive access to those 40,000 hours of security footage. He's the same Tucker Carlson who produced a three-part series called Patriot Purge, in which he claims, without a shred of evidence, it wasn't Donald Trump who incited the deadly insurrection, but rather his opponents, including Antifa, the FBI, and others in the intelligence community, and that the coup attempt was a false flag operation aimed at discrediting the MAGAs. Democrats quickly called McCarthy's decision deeply irresponsible, warning that it poses a grave danger to the Capitol and those in it, because the footage includes highly sensitive details like escape routes, security camera angles, and other logistics. You can be sure Carlson's going to put the footage through a selective editing process to further his unfounded conspiracies, throwing more red MAGA meat to the crazies. But this is also very politically risky because pouring more gas on an already blazing big lie could piss off moderate Republicans and independents and bite the GOP in the ass in 24. Call it what you want, pandering, placating, or payback. But McCarthy's decision is just a pathetic ploy to further ass-kiss the seditionist sympathizing MAGA lunatics like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and solidify their support in his very thin majority. Because the unfortunate truth is, McCarthy cares more about retaining his speakership than defending and protecting our democracy and holding those accountable for January 6th. McCarthy said this week, quote, I promised I would give you the truth regarding January 6th, and now I am delivering. Bullshit. If he was interested in the truth, he'd have given the tapes to Jake Tapper. All right, let's get to Ellie Honig. Ellie is a CNN senior legal analyst and the best-selling author of Hatchet Man and the just-released Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. He's a former federal and state prosecutor. From 2004 to 2012, he was an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. He successfully prosecuted more than 100 members and associates of the mafia, including bosses and other high-ranking members, on murder, racketeering, and other charges. In 2022, he was nominated for an Emmy Award in the category Outstanding News Analysis, Editorial, and Opinion. He also hosts podcasts and writes for CAFE and Fox Media, teaches at Rutgers University, and is special counsel at a New Jersey law firm. Ellie, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me, Andy. This is this will be fun. Looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. So speaking of fun, one of the things we like to do here in the back room is to try to get try to get a little window into people's souls before we get into the meaty stuff. And uh, so we ask a question up front, and then there's one at the back end. Uh, the, okay. first, the first one is, are you a dog or a cat person? Okay, so the answer is, if I had to choose, I'm a dog person. But I have a bad history with pets. Let me, I'll lay it out. You'll, you'll get a window into my soul here, okay? I've been allergic to cats since, like, since I was born. Um, I, my best friend growing up had a cat named Muffin, who I still remember. And every time I, we would try to have a sleepover at his house, I'd have to call my mom at midnight and go, I can't breathe, that she would come get me dogs i'm really burying my soul here i was terrified of dogs as a kid i don't know why i just was scared of dogs like every neighborhood dog like i would go, go wide berth around the house and all that um there's a few that i've come to like now a few friends dogs but i'm neither and the only time i was allowed to have a pet ever i had a bird i really wanted a bird like a little parakeet that you could put on your finger but again this is embarrassing but what the heck i was probably 10 
and I was scared of it. I was too scared to put it this big. I was too scared to put it on my finger and I thought it was gonna peck me and we had to give it away like three days later. So I guess the bottom line is I'm I'm not the world's greatest pet person. Sounds like you don't even want to go to the zoo. You're so terrified of animals. I love zoos because we're safely, you know, we have Fine bars. A safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I always say animals and I have reached an understanding like i'm not gonna mess with you mm -hmm. I, i'm not gonna hunt you i'm not gonna hurt you i'm not gonna run you up nothing and, you, and you're gonna stay away from me and it's like we, we've reached a mutual understanding it's so the the fear of dogs thing when i was a kid i used to get bitten by dogs all the time because i grew up in in queens and was always a lot of stray dogs yeah. running around but sure to be terrified of dogs like without having being without being yeah. bitten or like you have I no idea where that comes from no idea, no idea. I'll tell you a quick, a quick funny story. My my nieces are also very afraid of dogs, like I was. And we went to a park with them, and there were like dogs everywhere, and they were freaking out. But then they calmed down and they got through it. And at the end, I said to them, the, the older one was probably eight or nine at the time. I said, "See, you, you you're fine now. You're not afraid of dogs anymore." And she goes, "Oh no, we're still afraid of dogs." She's like, <laughs> "I reserve the right to still." <laughs> so uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. I just never. I don't. It's one of the. It's probably a phobia. I mean, I'm I'm okay. I don't freak out or anything now. But when I was a kid, it was probably bordering on a phobia. I always wonder, like, when people either are terrified of dogs or allergic of cats. Like, how does it work when you're when you're dating and like you meet someone and uh, you fall in love, uh, but it's like they got two cats. Yeah. Then what do you do? I guess it. I guess initially you just pretend. <laughs> I mean, right like like everything <laughs> um and no my wife never went, make believe you're okay yeah i mean actually now that i think of it my wife's family had cats um and so yeah i would just dope up on Sudafed, exactly on benadryl or whatever and just get through yeah yeah, yeah. all right so speaking of your childhood yes you you have a illustrious legal career i'm wondering like when you were a kid <laughs> First time, like when you just see the Godfather and go, like, you know what? I want to put, I want to put those guys away one day. Like, <laughs> did you always have this like criminal-minded, prosecutorial inclination, or was that something that came like after college? And oh shit, I'm gonna go to law school. Maybe. Yeah. So I would say during college. So first of all, my dad's a lawyer. My dad's retired now, but he was a lawyer. And if anything, people say, oh, that must be why you wanted to become a lawyer. Oh no, to the contrary. Like I saw how hard of a job it was. You know, he he ran his own solo or small firm and he worked his ass off mm. and i saw what a stress it was and in fact like, like the first job i ever had paid job was his office was in a house like a house that had been rezoned for office and it flooded the basement flooded one time and he would keep a lot of his old files in the basement so he brought me in for two or three full days and all i did was they had like in a panic just pulled all the boxes out and put them Put them up on risers and i had to go back through all the boxes reorganize re-alphabetize everything i spent two or three full days doing this i got paid 15 dollars per day not per hour per day and used that money to buy a handful of cassettes i would i would have sued your father if i was you oh no i've raised this with him i'm still owed yeah there's no question not that he has back pay for a he owes you back jobs. pay yeah he does you're right but anyway the point is i saw how hard it was to be a lawyer i did not have a glamorous view of lawyers life when i went to college i wanted to be in psychology but i took one psych class that was really boring and mm -hmm. simultaneously took one class on criminal law with this dynamic professor and i actually interned for the public defender in the county where mm -hmm. my college in new jersey i went to Rutgers, and so i started going into prisons meeting with clients and watching trials happen and that was what lit my lamp. That was what made me go, whoa, this is better than the movies. This is better than anything you'll see on TV. 
this is, I would love to do this. And so that's really what set me on course. In, in terms of the mob stuff, I loved all those movies. I loved Goodfellas in particular, but I just never thought, I, I don't know. I just didn't think that was realistic until I got to the SDNY and that's where I landed. So did, you know, real gangsters, many of them. So when you were a public defender, were you defend? Did you switch sides? Were you did you start off defending the mob guys and then prosecuted so, them, or, or were you? Yeah, doing... so I was never I was never a public defender per se. I interned for the public defender mm -hmm. in college and in law school. I actually did a program at law school called Harvard Defender. I went to Rutgers undergrad Harvard Law School, and we had a program called Harvard Defenders. So I started representing poor people in very low level cases in. The Dorchester and, you know, those, do you, you know, the, you know, the scene in Goodwill Hunting where Matt Damon is in front of the judge mm -hmm. and he's quoting like stuff like that's exactly what those courts were like, you know, people in, involved in assaults or minor thefts or minor, minor drug possession. So I did that and I loved that. And then I went to a big firm where they let me work on a death penalty case, defending a guy who, who'd been convicted years before of a murder and, and pled guilty and, and sentenced to death. And we actually came in after the fact. I loved doing that part of it. And then from there, I went over to the prosecutor's office. I have, as, although I spent the majority of my career, 14 years as a prosecutor, I have all the respect in the world for, for defense lawyers, especially public defenders. I mean, what a hard and noble mm. job that is. But also just doing what you did. I mean, I have always wondered about the guys, you know, and going back to like Giuliani, who, who really, yeah. to his credit, the one thing I do give him credit for was cracking the mob the way he did. Yeah. But I've always wondered, like, do you ever wonder these guys are just going to off you? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you're the one trying to put them in prison. Why wouldn't the mob just kill yeah. you? They kill so many people. So it's a good question. So first of all, I agree with you on Rudy. I mean, Rudy was, when I arrived at the Southern District of New York was 2004. So we're pretty close to the aftermath of 9-11. Rudy was was an exalted figure. I mean, mm -hmm. we knew he was, a, everyone who knew him, and I know plenty of people, I never met the guy, but I know plenty of people who worked with him and under him and said, you know, he was a blowhard and a self-promoter, but he was a strong, you know, prosecutor who knew how to do the job and a strong leader and a good mayor for mm -hmm. a while. But boy, has he disintegrated in a way that's sad. Um, and, and I've I've ripped Rudy publicly and I will continue to rip him for what he's become. Um, he, did, he did do a, a remarkable groundbreaking job against the mob. Why don't they kill me? To your point, <laughs> here's the deal. If the way the law worked was, if you kill the prosecutor, the case gets dismissed, I'd be dead 20 times over. I mean, right, that's, of course they would. But one of their mob rules, and they do break these rules sometimes, but not this one, is you don't mess with a prosecutor, you don't mess with cops, you don't mess with a judge. You mm -hmm. don't threaten them, you don't show up at their house, you don't kill them or, or assault them. It's very honorable. Why? Yeah, well, it's not. Of course, of course, it's not really about being honorable. It's really about the bottom line, because think of it from their view. What would happen if they did something to me? More okay, heat. the case doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. More heat. You hit, you hit it on the head. All holy hell would rain down on them. Mm -hmm. First of all, they just plug in the next prosecutor in my case. Second of all, they'd be adding murder of a federal prosecutor, murder of a federal official charges. Third of all, the entirety of the New York FBI and Southern District would be would be just swarming you and everyone you've ever spoke with. Mm -hmm. So it's not good business for them is really the bottom line. I will say, Andy, I have a I have an interesting relationship with the mob where I sort of developed a little bit of mutual, I don't want to say respect because I understand what they do and did, but they have a respect for me. I mean, John Gotti Jr., I tried him and he has spoken public of, uh, positively of me in public several times since then, including in his book, saying I'm an honorable guy who was 
you know, really good, personable and good in front of a jury. I think he wrote in his book. I've had guys, I can't, I won't say who, but I've had more than three people who I convicted who have reached out to me, DM me through social media and said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, you were my prosecutor. Are you taking defense cases now? Because I need someone, <laughs> which my answer is no, but I kind of take that as a compliment. I'd, I'd say you arrived. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Right. And, and I'm in touch with a lot of my cooperators, guys who flipped and became uh, witnesses who testified for the government. I'm still I've interviewed one so of them how, on my podcast. So how can yeah. they kill witnesses? Like, is that not part of the, 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 the golden rule? Right. So they 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 do that. That is the, the number one re of all the mob murders I ever prosecuted or knew of. By far, the most common reason was they thought the person was cooperating, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. The, again, if you go back to that cost benefit calculus, there is, I hate to say this, but there is a benefit because if you kill the witness, a lot of times the case goes away or yep. they're, they're not able to make the case again. Interesting. You can't, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so there's A, there's more benefit and B, it's probably less cost. I mean, we take killing witnesses very, very seriously, but not the same as if you went after a judge or a prosecutor. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very glad they didn't kill you uh, because you seem like a nice Thank guy you. and and you wouldn't be on this <laughs> podcast today. I <laughs> Yeah, I you wouldn't be here today if I'm they very killed glad you. They didn't kill you, <laughs> says Andy Ostrich. Yeah, uh, no, I'm a I'm a completely compassionate guy. Yeah. So let's talk about this Emily Kors woman, Kors. and I want to sort of set a little table here, which I did in the opening part of this uh, episode. Yeah. It's like you know, everyone is talking. I mean, I've seen you this week on TV. Everyone's talking about you know the the question of inappropriateness of what she did, uh, the, the the potential negative impact on the case. Uh, to your point, you know, that you have said, like, is this going to be a motion to dismiss? Yeah, you tweeted that. But I want to kind of go to a different place, which no, sure. no, not a lot of people or anyone I've seen are talking about. And we're all, it seems like everyone's kind of dancing around this, which is, is she nuts? <laughs> like, is there some? Well, I you mean, went right to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. It's not about the message per se. We're, we're yeah. all talking about her because of the messenger. And the messenger seems a little loopy or maybe a lot loopy. It's a, it's a really interesting counterfactual. What if this person was, picture someone you respect. What if this person was your favorite teacher growing up or, or picture a parent or an aunt or an uncle who you respect who mm -hmm. presents well. What if this person was saying the exact same things that she's saying but presented in that manner, I think we'd probably re be receiving it a bit differently. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote about this in my weekly column and podcast, which comes out every Friday. And what I said right up front is, let's sort of make this deal. Let's not get into picking on her for her appearance and her mannerisms and, and all that. I mean, she's a she's an adult. She's 30. She was the foreperson of a grand, a very important special grand jury. But let's also not minimize. I mean, she knows what she's doing. She, she's a sentient, you know, a, a, a grown up. And she made this decision to speak. And it's a horrible decision. Now, as I write today, and I think I've said on air, this is absolutely going to be a headache. There absolutely will be a motion to dismiss. I don't think ultimately it will succeed. I don't think ultimately it's probably fatal to the case. But A, it's a it's an unnecessary headache for prosecutors. And B, my, my real objection and I talked about this with, with Anderson Cooper the other night, was it completely undermines the sense of seriousness and the discipline with which prosecutors are going about this case. A, this is supposed to be a very serious process. You're talking about taking away a person's liberty. I don't care if you love the guy, hate the guy, whatever. It's a serious thing. And you have this woman who's loving it and, and 
spilling the beans and playing these silly games. I'm not going to say his name, but you won't be surprised. I mean, come on. We understand what she's saying. But the other thing is it doesn't reflect well on prosecutors. It's not their fault that she's out there yapping. I'm sure that they are all slapping their foreheads going, what is she doing? But they don't really have the power to stop her. But some of the things that she said don't reflect well on prosecutors. I'll give you two examples. One is she said in one of her many interviews, oh, yeah, we were reading the newspapers every day in the, in, in the grand jury room. The prosecutor said it was OK. They said don't they said keep an open mind. But we but that is crazy. As a prosecutor, you have to stop that. You have to say, oh, no, folks, the number one rule or not, but a very important rule for a grand jury or a trial jury is you avoid the press as much as humanly possible. Judges will tell juries, if you see something come on the TV, flip the channel. If you see something come up on your social feed, media feed, ignore it, move on, You know, block it, whatever. And, for, and the fact that they're reading the newspapers and prosecutors knew about it and were like, yeah, but just ignore it, that's not good. And then it's another small detail. But you know, she, she laughs about the fact that she swore in some witness on a popsicle stick from SpongeBob SquarePants. I guess she held out the popsicle stick and the guy put his hand on it and swore. And she's laughing. She goes, oh yeah, because we had just had an ice cream party with the DA, DA's office. It's like, say what? I mean, you are, you have to maintain a, you can't be having an ice cream party with the grand jurors. And so when, if and when Fonnie Willis per, uh, pursues an indictment, part of what they will say is, well, this independent fact-finding grand jury recommended this. Uh, and, and I think it's fair to say, really, how independent were they? They're supposed to be this independent check bulwark of liberty, a check on prosecutors. And again, it's a small thing and it may get overblown, but it's not a good look that you're laughing it up with a SpongeBob thing and swearing people in like it's a joke and having an ice cream party and saying, go ahead, read the papers. So I think it's a it's a problem in several respects. I don't think it's going to tank an indictment, probably, but it will certainly give Trump's lawyers grist for emotion, no question. Yeah, but but you know the the counter to that is they'll find their grist no matter what. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah, if it's but not why this, give it's, them more? That's true. But also yeah. the counter is you know because she's so loopy appearing, is it quite possible that they were brought? ice cream one day and the way she interprets it or is projecting yeah. it is we had a da ice cream party so right, it's now like right. okay was it really a a, a a party that fanny willis threw or right. did they just bring an ice cream one day like they right. bring in like spaghetti could, you know what i mean exactly i wouldn't have a huge problem with it if on a friday afternoon at the end of a long week of testimony they came in with a box of ice cream sandwiches and were like thanks for you know, we right. know it's been a tough week, right? No, you're right. I mean, and, and the thing is like, you know, she she's, the way she presented is, I, I agree. I mean, she didn't present in a super impressive manner. I'm trying to sort of be careful how I say this, but that she is the foreperson. Yeah. And so when this grand jury's findings came out, remember the week before and we got a glimpse of some of the, everyone, this is very important. This is very serious. This is to be taken very seriously. Well, now anyone who wants to make the opposite argument will go, this is the work product of that Emily Coors. So as seriously as you take Emily Coors, that's how seriously you should take their findings because she's the four person here. So again, it's not necessarily a fair argument. There's 23 people on that grand jury. They chose her as mm -hmm. the four person, but it, it gives grist to undermine the process. Right. Now, uh, Judge Robert McBurney came out, I think yesterday in an interview, and he said, hey, basically what she did was fine. Like, yeah, you know, could you speak to the issue of deliberations? Because yeah. that was the main point yeah. he made that 
she she was talking, but she didn't reveal anything about deliberations. Why is that an yeah, important so distinction? The legal line is she's not she's not <laughs> supposed to be talking about quote deliberations of the grand jury. But what does that mean? I mean, let's look at what she did talk about. First of all, she said she talked about the fact that they've recommended indictments and the numbers roughly, right? She estimated. Is that's certainly the result of a grand jury deliberation, isn't it? She talked about specific piece of evidences, specific pieces of evidence that they considered. She talked about many specific witnesses by name and how the grand jury assessed their credibility. She said, for example, we found Lindsey Graham to be quite honest. We found Cassidy Hutchinson to be more forthcoming, but Mark Meadows to be less forthcoming. We found, um, I'm blanking on the name, but the Georgia Speaker of the House to be so funny and hilarious. She kept talking about which witnesses she found so funny, so hilarious. I mean, that is, she said, we heard from, and here's what we, the grand jury, made of them. Here's how we weighed their testimony. I mean, to me, is that not deliberation? It's pretty close to the line. I mean, I get that the core of deliberation would be, we took a vote and it came out 20 to three, and here's the 20 who voted yes and the three who voted no. That would be obviously deliberation. But I think the things that she did say, there is a reasonable way to interpret the term deliberation that what she did say does fall with it. When you're talking about that, what they voted for, mm -hmm. roughly how many people, mm -hmm. and what they made, how they assessed the credibility of particular witnesses, you're close to the line there. Yeah, and I know you agree with me because I you, you tweeted this, but like it's abundantly clear that Trump's getting indicted. Be of course, because well, she telegraphed it. She yeah. tell. I mean, you know, she's so cagey and animated, but it's like, you know, is he going to get indicted? I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. You know, but, uh, you know, he, you're going to see him in court. But I could be talking yeah. about the food court like she was so. Like, <laughs> but it's I, I wrote, clear what today, she was saying. I wrote today. It's almost as if she said, I won't say any names, but I'll tell you that it begins with a T and it ends with yeah. an R-U-M-P. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not, so even, it's not even good. At, there, there's such thing as ambiguity. It's not even well done ambiguity. Right. There's a way she could have been like, look, I'm not going to get into specific names, but you'll see when it comes out. And we would have all been like, what does that mean? But I mean, you, you could show that clip to, to a seven year old. and they go, Obviously. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess yeah. what what matters or the only thing that matters at the end of the day in terms of deliberations is what McBurney thinks, how he defines deliberations, right? I mean, well, no, no, because I think the way it works is let's say this case gets indicted and it gets wheeled out to judge whoever I don't, you know, ju let's just say hypothetically Judge Smith. The motion to dismiss is to dismiss is going to go to Judge Smith, our hypothetical made up Judge Smith here, who's going to have to decide whether this a whether this grand juror violated that rule, but be also whether there's prejudice. And mm -hmm. I think that's an important point here. This grand juror is part of a special grand jury. They're not the ones actually voting on indictment. They're just making a recommendation. Right. I honestly don't even know exactly why. I, I guess we could, you know, sort of uh, speculate. Why would they even do this whole special grand jury procedure for seven months anyway? I, I think they're trying to lay a foundation and give some political cover for if and when they do indict Donald Trump to go, look, this special grand jury recommended it after very careful deliberation. Emily Kors has undermined that whole notion of this independent, you know, staunch body um, is with us. But I think that's why. So but ultimately, a motion to dismiss won't go to Judge McBurney. It would go to whoever whatever judge is assigned any eventual indictment. Mm -hmm. And so there I'm one of the people who believes that Trump's biggest exposure 
and maybe his simplest exposure is Georgia. I think you agree on some level and you, and you say that in your book, but you also yeah. raise some issues that are inherently problematic with the Georgia case. Yeah. Why don't you speak to that? Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. I've long agreed, and I say in my book, that Georgia is certainly the most likely to indict. And I think that's now even more likely. I think we're virtual certainty here. Um, but I think they actually ha- are the, the not the ideal body to, to indict. I think DOJ is much better positioned. Now, I don't know whether DOJ is going to or not. But Georgia prosecutors are going to face some real difficulties here. First of all, because this is going, if this is an indictment, it's going to be coming from a local county level elected DA, you're going to see a constitutional challenge right off the bat. You're going to see Donald Trump's lawyers run over to federal court across the street or wherever it is and say, first of all, federal judges do two things. One, you take over this case. And there actually is a, an obscure provision that says if a federal official is charged by a state prosecutor with anything touching on his federal job responsibilities, the federal courts can take that over. And second, they're going to say federal judges throw this thing out because I have immunity, what's known as immunity, meaning I can't be indicted by a state level prosecutor for anything touching on the uh, the execution of my federal duties. Now, there will be a heated battle. Prosecutors will say what he was doing was the opposite of his job as president. It was illegal. It was wrong. It was um, the opposite of what a president should be doing. He will say, A, it's not about whether I was doing a good job or a bad job or even a legal job or an illegal job. It's about the fact that it still touched on the office. And second of all, I I mean, and so he may well run into a a favorable federal judge. There's a lot of play here. But the the 11th Circuit, they've ruled against Trump Mm -hmm. on the special master, for example. But but it remains a very conservative circuit. So it's quite possible the federal courts either throw the case out or take it over for trial. If this case ends up in federal court for trial. Forget about it. Your jury pool is a disaster. If the case is tried in just Fulton County, let's say, um, I did the math on this in my book, 72% voted for Biden, 26% voted for for Trump. Very, very blue district. But you're still virtually guaranteed to have at least one and likely two or three Trump jurors on that 12-person juror Mm -hmm. out of 26% of the whole population. If it ends up in the federal district, which is the entire northern district of Georgia, 40-something counties, you're going to have uh, uh, half your jury or more is going to be Trump. Well, there are counties in that district that went 80 percent for Trump. So let's start with that. You got all those problems. On top of all that, you have the problem of two and change years have already passed since January 1st. And that's a problem, not legally. You have five years or whatever it is under the statute of limitations. But in terms of actually standing up and getting a jury to convict unanimously and beyond a reasonable doubt, first of all, it feels less immediate. Imagine mm-hmm. if this case had been indicted in September of 2021. It would have felt, now it feels like a page in history. It's right. still very important, but it doesn't have that sense of burning immediacy. Second of all, DOJ and Fonnie Willis have both undermined any rhetoric about what a burning threat this is to democracy. Because you know what DOJ and other prosecutors do when something's a burning threat? They get that thing taken down in a week, in two weeks, in a month, in two months, in three months, in four months, in six months. I've seen DOJ move with remarkable speed. Here they are lagging around into two plus years since this and nobody, including Fonnie Willis, who, by the way, has had the case for long. She's been in office longer than Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland didn't come until March. um, And they've taken this long. And it's not just a question of me being an impatient former prosecutor, which I am. Um, It's a question of, when are you going to try this thing? All right, let's say there's an indictment tomorrow. And if, let's say March 1st, let's say next week. When do you think this thing is going to re- land in front of a jury? After all the motions, 
all the appeals, including the grand jury motion that we just talked about, you're not getting to a trial until best case scenario, early 2024, likely mid to late 2024. Now you're going to have to go in front of a jury, Mm -hmm. get all 12 of them unanimously, not just to convict a former president for the first time in American history, who, by the way, is very unpopular, but also very popular. All you need is one person Mm -hmm. to say no go and and you have a mistrial and a hung jury. Now you're going to say to a jury, convict this guy who also, by the way, is in the middle of primaries and is the front runner or let's say or one of the main candidates for one of the two major parties. You are making your job so much harder. Mm -hmm. And so I do think we're quite likely to see an indictment. It could result in conviction. I'm not saying it's impossible, but boy, people really need to understand what a steep, rocky, uphill climb it's going to be from indictment to conviction. Well, this this subject is a great segue into your book, but I want to, before we get to it, I want to ask you about Mike Pence, uh, yeah. who was part of all this. You know, he's arguing, uh, you know, speech separation of, of powers, speech of debate clause, yeah. like, like the proverbial throw enough shit up on the wall and hope, hope something sticks. Uh, is yeah. there any merit in your mind to what his uh, legal team is pursuing in, in, trying to get him out of uh, testimony and also speak to, I guess, yeah. yesterday, the Justice Department went to a federal judge and said, compel him to testify. So there is some legitimacy to Mike Pence's legal argument here. He, he's claiming that he's entitled. I think he probably is right that the speech and debate clause, which basically says members of Congress cannot be subpoenaed and forced to answer questions outside of Congress. He argues creatively, well, as VP, I was also president of the Senate, so it should apply to me. I think he'll probably win on that particular point because uh, that speech and debate clause has been interpreted broadly by the courts, by DOJ. The courts have said it can apply to congressional aides and staffers, so why not the president of the Senate? And DOJ itself, by the way, has taken the position in the past several times that it does, it can apply to the VP. Um, and Pence was acting in this in this case. In his, you know, He was counting the electoral votes in his capacity as president, president of the Senate. Now, in ter- the next question, though, is, are the communications part of his legitimate legislative work? And the same thing goes for the dispute about Lindsey Graham, the dispute about Scott Perry that's going on right now. And I think in all those instances, we're not going to see straight wins or straight losses. I think what we're going to see is the courts, and this is what the court decided in the Lindsey Graham case. They're going to say, look, if the conversation that you're testifying about has to do with your legitimate legislative work, then it is protected and you don't have to testify about it. But if it falls outside of that, then you're not protected and you do have to testify. And the court sort of wagged its finger at Lindsey Graham and said, and by the way, your coordination with the Trump campaign does not count. Your efforts to pressure Georgia elected officials does not count. But if he says, well, I was talking, I'm hypothetically, I was talking with my aides about how should I vote on certifying the election, that probably does count and probably is protected. So I think we're going to see a similar outcome for Pence. I think the court's going to have to go sort of topic by topic, question by question, and decide what they want to do. Um, The problem, though, is does Jack Smith have time for all this? We just talked about the importance of delay. If you're going to litigate all these up to the courts of appeals, that could take months. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's right to to fight for this. I think he's got the right idea, but um, it's going to cause further delay, inevitably. So let's let's talk about your book. It's called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. It, I think it came out two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And yep. uh, getting uh, getting a, yep. getting a lot of press, and it, it raises a really interesting question overall about people, certain people being above the law. You know, are, are people who are connected and powerful and wealthy, 
you know, are they truly above the law or do they just know how to game the system? Or do they know how to insulate themselves? And when yeah. you have money and you have power and you have connections, I mean, isn't that isn't that what we're talking about? So are there truly people who are above the law? And, and we talk about Trump and we talk about Pence. Yeah. Are, are they just going to get away with whatever it is they do because they have all those attributes? So I think the answer is is not always. Not everyone does. There's plenty of examples of powerful people who've been brought to consequences. But I think there's far more examples of people who have either avoided consequences or only really been brought to justice after there's a media firestorm and a political and public firestorm. I mean, if you think about Harvey mm -hmm. Weinstein, mm -hmm. Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Cosby, all of them went to jail or, or you know, at least for some time or, or likely will never get out of jail, but they all got free passes the first time or two through the system. They only were ever brought to justice because enormous public and media pressure uh, brought on the prosecutors and then doubled back and tried to sort of fix their earlier errors. You know, my thesis in the book is we've really got a three-pronged problem here. Um, and three parties are to blame. Obviously, the actual wrongdoers are the, the, the primary problems. But we have a system that has all sorts of built-in advantages for powerful people, for rich people, for savvy people who know how to play it. We have certain bosses, Donald Trump being foremost among them, who are expert at manipulating and leveraging those advantages. And too often, and we've talked about this already on this show, Andy, you have prosecutors who either have been unwilling or unable to fight back properly and to counteract some of those tactics. So I give a lot of specific examples in the book based on my own experience as a prosecutor, based on public stories, based on some of my own reporting even um, about DOJ's deliberations over Donald Trump and Michael Cohen and the hush money case. Mm -hmm. So I think you have all three of those factors sort of coalescing here. I mean, you, you reference in your book uh, from your mob days, like Daniel Marino, okay? Yeah. Uh, Gambino mm -hmm. family mobster, the head of the family. And that he has he has things in common with Trump, like both understood. This is a quote: both understood and leveraged yeah. money, status, and fear to protect their own interests and to silence or destroy anyone who posed a threat. And just yeah. a casual observer over the years, you look at Donald Trump, and he acts like like a freaking mob boss. And he, and he we really know that does. those guys yeah. got a, away with that stuff for a very very long time. Yeah, you know, it, it's remarkable because it has become sort of a trendy to say Trump's like a mob boss, but like I'm able to vouch for that because <laughs> I, I prosecuted mob bosses like Danny Marino. Um, and I was struck by, as I sort of went back through some of those cases, including the Marino case, oh my gosh, the similarities are remarkable. And I don't know if Trump does that intentionally or just sort of by instinct, but it's really helped him. But I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Danny Marino is a gangster who was basically the boss of the Gambino family who authorized the murder of his own nephew, right. who was cooperating. We talked earlier about why do they kill witnesses. Um, and the evidence that we had against Danny Marino all boiled down to this. Um, and by the way, I say in the book, we prosecuted and convicted everyone who was in on the actual shooting, the driving to the scene, the shooter, everything else. They all got major sentences, 20 years, sometimes life, depends. Um, but we didn't have Danny Marino, even though we knew he did it, because we just didn't have the proof. And finally, we came up with a witness who said, yeah, we sent someone into prison to tell Marino that his nephew was a rat, to use their word. And Marino's response was, do what you got to do. Mm -hmm. Do what you have to do. And that was it. Those five words were our entire case. And we charged Marino. And I say in the book, it was maybe an overly aggressive charge. And we thought we would be able to 
sort of uh, bolster the case, but we weren't. And so we end up, I don't want to give too much away, but we end up giving Danny Marino a plea deal that even to this day, as I say, I'm not satisfied was a just outcome. It was better than nothing, but it wasn't great. And, you know, Marino was savvy enough. Marino's not going to say kill the guy. Marino's going to say, do what you got to do. Now, they're going to argue. Imagine what they would argue at trial. That could mean anything. That can mean beat him up. That can mean make sure he's cooperating. That can mean come back to me. That can, Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but we argued that based on this culture and this environment and this sort of pattern um, that they all understood, they knew what that meant. And that, that was a tough argument for us. Look at Donald Trump. He, Michael Cohen is, is, is very uh, instructive on this point. Mm-hmm. Michael Cohen, let's, for example, lied to Congress about Trump's efforts to build in Moscow. And he pled guilty to that. And Michael Cohen was asked, I think, in Congress later, well, did, did Donald Trump, oh no, he, uh, Mueller's team asked him, did Donald Trump tell you to lie that way? And Cohen honestly says, candidly says, no, that's not how he worked. He wouldn't mm-hmm. say, I need you to lie. He would say, I heard you got the subpoena. You know that we didn't do anything wrong. So just go in there and, and, and you know, paraphrasing, do what you have to do, basically, mm-hmm. right? And Cohen says, there was no mistake what he meant. Mm-hmm. We, we dealt with him all the time. That was his way of speaking. So He's, look at January 6th. He didn't mm-hmm. exactly say, I want you all to go down and tear apart the Capitol. He said, be there, will be wild. He said, we're going to go down to the Capitol. We're going to show strength. If you don't do it, your democracy will die. Um, and his his followers understood that to mean do what they ended up doing. Don't take it from me. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of them have argued in court. They believe they were following his instructions. So um, that is one of many similarities that yeah. I know. And, and on that point, like the intent, which is what's essential to prove in the J6 case with Trump, by saying take down the magnometers, and I don't care if these people are armed, yeah. but it, it, it's, if you, you have to roll up everything to get to the conclusions right. that sane people like you and I get to. But the funny thing about right. Trump, getting back to like the Godfather references or mob, mob boss references, is it that much of a stretch, okay? If he knew Junior, who I call Fredo, if he knew that Fredo Trump was going to put his ass in jail and that he was going to die in prison, is it such a stretch to think he wouldn't go to Roger Stone or somebody and go, do what you got to do, right? To his own kid, right? So, I mean, Uh, it's conjecture. I'm I'm not going to sign on to that. That's extreme. (laughs) Count me out There's There's a lot of people who think Donald Trump will do anything to protect Donald Trump maybe with the exception of harming Ivanka Trump. But well, again, that's count, just me. Count me out on the kids part, but <laughs> that's just But me. I do let I do lay out in the book um a lot of the extreme measures that he does go to. Yeah. Um so the thing with Trump about him being above the law, you know when he's a sitting president, you can't indict him. Now right. he's like a not a sitting president, but he's a candidate. Mm, right. Difficult to it, it just it's like the the ground beneath him is so fertile for him to avoid justice. At all yeah. times, like when is yeah. it? When is it? It's like when there's just a mass shooting, and everybody says, or, or the the you know the the Second Amendment crowd is like, this is not the time to discuss this. When is right. the time to indict Trump? Right. You know? So there's of course no legal protection for for a former president or for a candidate for next presidency. Um, but two things. One is I argue in the book that this policy against DOJ policy against indicting a sitting president actually has a longer tail. And it actually has implications that make it more difficult to to prosecute a former president. You're letting time pass by, you might lose the statute of limitations like we discussed before. Mm -hmm. The conduct is gonna feel less immediate. Um, Witnesses fade, memories fade, evidence goes away. It seems less immediate. 
So that's so it, that's part of the answer. Um, I also think, you know, if you're going to if you're going to indict a, a former president, the time is basically right away, right when he leaves office, right when the crimes feel immediate and urgent to the American public, not two and a half years later. And then finally, you know, there is this notion. I think we as Americans are are not super comfortable with the idea of slapping handcuffs on and potentially locking up our mm -hmm. former president. It doesn't feel American. It's not something we like to do, right? We look, we think that's what other countries, lesser countries do. Um, but I actually did a bit of a dive on this in the book. A, to me, surprising number of developed democracies have in fact indicted and in some mm -hmm. cases convicted and imprisoned their former presidents or prime ministers. I mean, Israel, Italy, South Africa, South Korea, um, there's, there's, you know, more than 10, more than a dozen developed democracies that have done this and they haven't devolved into chaos or civil war. So um, I do think that, that you know, it, it takes some guts. It, it, it takes timely action. I think that that's already too late. But um, I do think we may well see indictments coming soon. But I think this has been, by and large, a prosecutorial failure. The, the, the way this should have been done is the U.S. Department of Justice should have brought charges for January 6th within six months mm -hmm. of him leaving office. And all the delay and all the focus on all the other stuff and the old financial stuff and the state level prosecutors is not, in my view, the ideal way for this prosecution to happen. Speak about the justice manual, which is this thing which basically yeah. says for prominent people, you got to have an extra layer of like, how come like if my ass is going to go to prison for the rest of my life, I don't get an extra layer of attention Yeah, it, it, to the point of your whole book. It's like. Yeah, that doesn't sound like we're all equal and no one is above the law. That sounds like certain people are above the law yeah. and get special attention. This, this is a perfect example that I say in the book. I say don't don't just take sort of don't just take it at the rhetoric, uh, rhetorical value. Look at the actual justice manual. It's a document. It's public. Uh, we had it all in the corner of our desks, mm -hmm. and it's binding on all U.S. Uh, attorneys, all federal prosecutors. And one of the provisions says, or it says really several different places, if you're investigating somebody who's famous who's uh, a political official, whose who's case is likely to generate national media coverage, you have to take that case up to higher and higher and higher levels of review. Naturally, that is better. That is more protection for powerful people. And you, you're so you're prominent. You might merit a certain level of review. But I I give a couple of Two, three examples minutes, maybe. in the book. Yeah, maybe like one. Well, yeah, exactly. An extra 30 seconds of a look. Um, I give two examples in the book. One of them is, I talk about a case I had where a Major League Baseball player, fairly, you wouldn't know him if you were, my mom wouldn't know his name, but but my son would, let's put it that way. You know, like if you sort of follow baseball, you would know who he was, made a couple all-star teams. He was tied up in a gambling ring with the mob. He wasn't gambling on baseball, by the way, but he was taking book from people in the neighborhood and that kind of thing. And if if this guy was not a baseball player, if he was just a guy, I would have made the decision myself. Do we charge him or not? It would have been, you know, I was a third or fourth year prosecutor at the time. But because he was well known and his case would have landed on the front page of the New York tabloids, um, I had to go up to my deputy chief of my unit, my chief of my unit, the deputy chief of the criminal division, the chief of the criminal division, and I think the deputy U.S. attorney. I don't think it got all the way up, but that's four or five extra layers of review that this guy got, mm -hmm. any one of which, and by the way, we decided not to charge him. I think it was probably the right case. It was just the right decision. It was just a gambling case. Um, but you will get far higher layers of scrutiny. I'll tell you one other example that I give in the book. I did a massive human trafficking case 
um, where we had 30-something defendants who were basically smuggling young women into the country and then essentially turning them into sex slaves. Horrible case, um, very important case that we did. Um, but I handled that case essentially on my own. Again, I was a third, fourth, maybe fifth-year prosecutor at the time. A couple of years later, I get a call from the one of the very highest ranking people in the office who goes, hey, remember that case you did a few years ago with the sex trafficking? What did you do with the Johns? What did you do with the guys who were paying for the services of your victims? And I said, you know, we actually didn't find any because we did our arrests and our search warrants at 6 a.m. So it was just the only people we found were the, the defendants and the victims who were asleep. Mm -hmm. There was no Johns. And, and he was like, oh, okay. And I was like, I couldn't help but poke. I said, why are you involved in a case like this? Like, you're, isn't this below your pay grade? And he was like, just, you'll see in a couple days. A few days later, a few, I forget what it was, a week or two later, maybe, massive headlines. Elliot Spitzer, I knew you the were governor there. of New York, client nine yep. in a massive sex trap. Because Elliot Spitzer was involved, they ended up not charging him, um, but they ended up, he was client nine. Um, but because it involved Elliot Spitzer, it got a thousand times, uh, not you know, a hundred times more scrutiny and review than my little case, which did not involve any yeah. any famous people. Well, I know I, I speak for probably about 325 million people when I say that just sounds so wrong. It's just not well, fair. Let me defend it for a moment. I agree with you. But here's what do you think? Do I'll put you on the spot? What do you think DOJ would say as to why they have that provision in their books? They wouldn't say because we like to favor powerful people. They would say the legitimate reason is what, it, what would what would make sense? Uh, offhand, I would probably say it because they're a bigger target. They have more yeah, enemies, I mean, more opponents. Somewhere along yes, those lines. They, I think they would say because we don't ever want there to be an impression that we're we're, we're going against someone for political reasons. We right. want to be able to say we went through rigorous scrutiny. And the reality is if you screw up one major case like that, it will stick with you in your office and undermine the public confidence in you in your office, outweighing 10,000 normal good cases. But how does that apply you know? to the baseball player? What's the political concern there? The, right, right. So they're, they're exact. So. Let's take it outside the realm of political folks and let's just go to celebrities. Martha Stewart, Alec Baldwin, right? If you screw up a case like that, it harms public uh, public faith in your office, right? I mean, the office that charged Kevin Spacey and then lost that case, um, they, you know, the only thing that will ever be remembered about that prosecutor or that office is the Kevin Spacey case. No one cares that they did 10,000 robbery cases successfully. Um, I mean, look at Alex Acosta the guy who gave away the Jeffrey Epstein case. Jeffrey Epstein is not a public official. Mm -hmm. All anyone will or should remember about Alex Acosta is that he completely screwed up and botched and gave away mm -hmm. the initial Jeffrey Epstein case. So I think the I think what you would hear is we are trying to protect the public's confidence in this office. Look at Cy Vance, that guy. I, I, mean, I, I was going to ask you about that because that's a startling re yeah. revelation in your book about Ivanka and, and Junior. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this was first reported by The New Yorker. They did a great job or, or I forget if it was New York Magazine or The New Yorker. Um, and I credit them in the book. I mean, years before Trump became president, Cy Vance's office had Don Jr. and Ivanka dead to rights based. Maybe I'm overstating it a little bit, but they had a good case against the two of them on a fraud case relating to a real estate deal. And the prosecutors on the case were not moved by the pleas of their lawyers. And so then Donald Trump sends in a lawyer who had donated to Cy Vance's re-election campaign, and Cy Vance decides not to bring the case. And then Cy Vance returns the donation when there's a media frenzy about it, and then he takes a new donation for even more from the same people, and then he returns that. 
I mean, what a total mess. Now, I don't argue in the book that Cy Vance was like bribed per se, but I do argue that his integrity was compromised because he had taken money from these people and then he rules in their favor um, to, to the disagreement of some of the people who actually worked the case. Mm -hmm. So I'm very critical of Cy Vance. He also completely gave away the initial Harvey Weinstein case. He could have charged him. He had good evidence, but he didn't do it. And so now all I think a lot of people remember about Cy Vance, and it's his fault, is that he botched the Trump kids case and that he botched the Harvey Weinstein case. I mean, I'm sure when he was there, his office did 10,000 good cases, mm -hmm. but he has forever undermined confidence in certainly his uh, own standing, but also in his office. And, you know, the same thing could be said about, at least at the beginning, with Alvin Bragg, Manhattan DA, and Pomerantz and the other attorney who quit, the prosecutor who quit. It's yeah, like, what, what, it just seems like there's this preponderance of, of desire not to go after Trump and his kids. Yeah. I don't so know. So I, I, I should say I'm, I'm personal friends with Alvin Braggett and I'm a former colleague. We were colleagues together at the Southern District of New York. I've actually been very critical of Mark Pomerantz here and I've defended Alvin on this. I wrote a piece last week on this. I, I called Mark Pomerantz a self-promoting prosecutorial turncoat. I mean, first of all, Pomerantz's PR tour is full of half-truths. There, I, I put in the article all sorts of things that he has said that contradict himself. Second of all, he's undermining their investigation right now. Pomerantz, you know, clears himself. He says, no, no, I'm not. He's been gone from that office for a year. That investigation is continuing. And when Alvin Bragg says they're undermining the case, Alvin Bragg would know, not Mark Pomerantz. Mm -hmm. Pomerantz also, his case wasn't ready for prime time. I mean, that has come out now. Alvin, it seems, was correct. And it's now been reported and, and not disputed that Pomerantz couldn't even identify what state law he wanted to charge Trump with. He did not write a draft indictment. He did not write a prosecution memo. He did not write what we call an order of proof. I mean, no prosecutor would approve charges with that. That's like me walking into a bank and saying, I'd like a half million dollar loan. I don't have my financials, but like, I'm pretty good. I'm fine. Nobody would approve that. So I actually think Mark Pomerantz is, is a, really a disgraceful figure here who is promoting himself, talking out of school, undermining whatever they're still trying to do on this case and not credible, uh, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a little bit of a different scenario. But yes, there is absolutely a reluctance that we've seen. And I think this goes to the delay issue that we've seen before by Merrick Garland, by Fonnie Willis, by the various Manhattan DAs, by um, Cy Vance. Um, again, that may change in the next couple of weeks, but they've let a heck of a lot of time tick off the clock. Yeah. No, there are issues with all of that for the reasons you've given. But the, you know, to me, the flip side that I always go to is like, with all the cases against him that he's fighting and all the obvious pieces of evidence that we see, which means there's like yeah. You know, when I when I had roaches in an apartment years ago, the exterminator said something to me that made my skin crawl. He goes, when you see a roach like during the day, that means there's right. no room. There's a thousand more. There's no room for him behind the cabinets. Oh. Right. So, oh, God. I was like, you just destroyed my Remember life. Remember what we talked about with me and animals in the beginning? This <laughs> yeah. is not going to sit well. So it's yeah. like if we think we've seen evidence, whether it's Georgia or J6 or 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 uh, yeah. New York or Hush Money, but, there's probably, a, and you know, you know, because you did this, there's like a million more pieces of things that we, evidence that we haven't seen. Yeah. So it makes me, me feel, that, but it makes me feel like, yeah. is it humanly possible that he's going to escape accountability on all of it? It's I just, very humanly I, I, possible. Yeah. I just, yeah. it just seems well, crazy. It depends, what, it depends what you count as accountability. Mm -hmm. If you consider an indictment 
full accountability, then I think he's very likely to be indicted. Well, that's if you consider a conviction and an actual sentence affirmed by courts of appeals, I think that is very unlikely. But, you know, you make a really good point, which is it is always a safe assumption that prosecutors know far more than we do, even with the the, the quality and quantity of media reporting. um, They know more. Although I will say, you know, when the Mueller report came out, there was kind of like we knew almost everything in there because the reporting had been so good. But I also want to add this. There's also more complexity and more nuance than we sometimes appreciate. And, and prosecutors are able to see some of the warts with, with their hmm. evidence. I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple examples. Cassidy Hutchinson, I believe to be a very credible, very powerful witness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in any prosecution she will, related to January 6th, she likely will be a pivotal witness. I believe essentially every word she said in, in her public in her TV um, broadcast testimony, but she's got problems because in her first or in earlier interviews with the January 6th committee, she lied to them. She's admitted now that she lied to them. The reason I understand, because she had this Trump appointed lawyer who she didn't feel comfortable, but Mm -hmm. initially she was asked, did you ever hear anything about Trump struggling with Secret Service to go down to the Capitol? She said, no, never heard anything about it. She has since said, that was a lie. I lied. Now, I can understand why. And as a prosecutor, I think you can probably explain to a jury why. But when she's on the stand, if she's ever on the stand, the defense is going to go, you lied to Congress. You could have been sent to, you know, that's a federal crime. You lied to Congress, didn't you? Yes, I did. That's going to hurt her credibility. Like fair or foul, that's the way it goes. So, you know, prosecutors know more than we do, but, but sometimes that's for better. Sometimes that's for worse. Uh, I want to, in our remaining uh, couple of minutes here, I want to ask you uh, about what you also write a lot in your book about uh, Merrick Garland. Uh, He has what seems to be political calculations. And and I want to quote you. You say, the problem is in seeking to restore political independence for the Justice Department, Garland has gone too far. It's one thing to do the job without regard to politics, but it's another to contort ordinary prosecutorial judgment to avoid doing anything that might even be perceived as political or controversial. And you say that he has like a paralyzing reticence and, quote, behaved more like a tepid bureaucrat than a determined prosecutor. Uh, this is all really troubling to hear from a guy like you. Yeah. So so let me say this about Merrick Garland. I, I do have real respect for him in, in several uh, ways. First of all, he is a career public servant. He has a really remarkable record behind him. He was a federal prosecutor for a long time. He was a a distinguished judge. I think he has gone a long way to undo the damage done by Bill Barr, the subject of my first book, Mm -hmm. uh, How Bill Barr, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. Merrick Garland has been honest. He's not lied to us. Sad that we have to praise an attorney general for not lying to us. But after Bill Barr, we have to note that. He doesn't always answer everything. He can't always answer everything. But I don't believe Merrick Garland has ever said anything uh, publicly that we that has been proven incorrect or misleading. He deserves credit for that. He also has taken pains, as I argue in the excerpt you just read, I think too far, to restore the political independence of the Justice Department. I think from day one, he did not want to indict Donald Trump, whether consciously or subconsciously. I'm not going to psychoanalyze him. I think he has, you know, it's like when you have this task ahead of you that you don't want to do and you just keep dragging your feet and finding more and more reason to put it off, to delay it. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it Monday. I'll do it after the weekend. I'll do it after the holiday because you're just, you don't want to wrestle with it. And you're hoping that maybe something will intervene to make it go away. 
There's no other reason. He's either trying to avoid it or he's a horrible tactician. And I do sort of argue both. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Merrick Garland's rallying cry is he always facts and law, facts and law, facts and law. Fine. Everyone says facts and law to justify. Bill Barr constantly justified what he did by saying facts and law. But the other thing that, that, that Garland always says is we start at the bottom and we work our way up. That's how we build cases. And, you know, I understand why to, to an ordinary person you go, OK, yeah, it sounds right. No, no, sir. That's not how a good prosecutor does it. You start at the highest possible point you can. Look at Jack Smith. He's been special counsel for a couple months, four months now. Right. He's already subpoenaed Mike Pence, uh, all these power players, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, right around in the center of power. That's what Merrick Garland should have done in April of 2021. Why he, you know, look, I get that they had to do these hundreds, and I think we're almost at a thousand now of people who actually stormed the Capitol. Had to prosecute those cases by and large, have done a good job. I'm not going to say great because they've been criticized by many federal judges for coming up short, but they did a good enough job on prosecuting those cases, had to focus on them, but not to the exclusion of the real power players. And this whole notion that, well, we had to flip the guy who's wearing rhino horns and then flip the Oath Keepers guy and then flip him. It, first of all, that's not ever going to get you to Donald Trump or the real power sources. There's no act. I don't believe we've ever seen a direct link Maybe Roger Stone, but that's we, we don't know. There, you don't have to do it that way. I say in the book, Merrick Garland could have gone for the jugular. Instead, he poked at each individual capillary. Yeah. And as a result, here we are about to be March of 2023, two years and two months after the Capitol attack. And forget about Donald Trump. Not a single person in or in proximity to any position of power has been held criminally accountable, even indicted for any of this. Don't tell me the Oath Keepers president. Right. I know that guy is, he's an important, yes, it's an important prosecution. It, it, it was a momentous prosecution. It was a good and righteous prosecution. That guy is not power. That yeah. guy does not have political power. He's in charge of this dangerous group of extremists, but he's not politically powerful. Yeah, and to your earlier point, which is the big concern, is now we're bumping up against a, what's gonna be a incredibly contentious presidential election. And so that that's yeah. that's that's a huge concern. Uh, my last question is the second window into the soul question. Okay, good. We uh, we think music is a big window yes. into the soul. So I want to know Ellie Honig's top five musical artists of all time. Oh, God, do I love that question. Okay, so I'm from Jersey and I live in Jersey now. So automatically I have Ooh. to say Springsteen. Mm -hmm. Of course. I mean, but 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 that's, let me just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to tread very delicately here. There is such thing as the Springsteen poser, okay? Mm -hmm. There are people who claim they love Bruce but can't name anything other than Born in the USA, right? Um, I am legit hardcore. I still have a visceral memory of, so that album, the Born in the USA album dropped in I think 84 when I'm nine years old, right? Mm -hmm. And that hit right, I mean, I immediately loved it. But my dad had records. This is a long answer for number one of five. My dad <laughs> had the vinyl. And my dad had The River, and my dad had Born to Run, and I still remember, and I was not interested in his records. I thought that was old bogey music. And I took Born to Run, or he gave me Born to Run, and I still remember dropping that needle and hearing that opening drum crash. It's not track what you know, Born to Run, which I think is track three, but I went right to Born to Run, or my dad must have gone right to Born to Run, and everything like, oh my God. Like, all the stuff I'm hearing on Born to Run is good. Um, Born to the USA is good, but this is a whole different thing. So Springsteen is number one. 
Um, I love you too. I, I know that they can be hokey and over the top, and I know they force their way what? onto our iPhones hokey? and all that. You too. I mean, this is the criticism of them. I love love you too. I love everything mm-hmm. that not everything they've done, but um, I, I just you know fr- from Joshua Tree to Octung Baby, all mm-hmm. that is is. Um, I I love hip hop. I am I was a big early '90s hip hop guy. Me too. Um, I love. I'm gonna sort of lump a couple together here if I can. Um, like LL Cool J, Run DMC, Eric B and Rakim, Naughty by Nature, the lyricists were, were, were those. All of those uh, I'm gonna lump together as mm-hmm. one if I can. Um, in a genre. I, all right, two more. Um, who else? You know who I? I, I mean. I'm trying to think of something alternative, but I'm not really, I don't really have alternative. To, oh, uh, 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 Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. I love Smashing Pumpkins. I saw them a year or two ago. They were mm-hmm. great. Um, and then finally, I'm torn between Pearl Jam, who I've done a pod. I, I'll say Pearl Jam. Um, I did another podcast, which is a great concept where the concept is they have a legal debate, not a legal debate, but a trial style debate where you argue which of a great band's two best albums was the best one. So my opponent was arguing 10 for Pearl Jam. Mm. I had the harder uphill climb. I argued versus their second album. And I understood I was the underdog. And there was a jury of five music critics and I won three to two. So, <laughs> so that's like arguing, that uh, a- that's like arguing which Guns N' Roses album is the best. Like they're all the best. And there's like yeah, what, four, I mean, Appet- three Appetite of them or four of them, pop- you know? You can't unseat appetite for destruction. That's yeah. impossible. Um, but uh, yeah, exactly. So so it's a, it's actually a very cool podcast concept. So I'm going to go with those five. Well, you you have similar music taste to me. I in the in the rap genre, I would have I would have thrown in uh, N.W.A., Public Enemy, Onyx, Snoop, sure. Dre. Same. Uh, but all, yeah, all of it. You, you get it. I have mixes. I have cassette mixes with all of those on it from from the you know '91 or whatever. <laughs> well, Ellie, you've been very generous with your time. This was a great conversation. Uh, your book, Untouchable: How Powerful People Get Away with It. It is out. People should buy it and read it because this is the world we live in. And uh, hope you'll come back again. Thanks, Andy. It was really a delight. Thanks for having me. That's episode 46. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind in the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Ellie Honig. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.